0: This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zelensky. G'day everyone, welcome to Diplomates, I'm Misha. Uh, Look, firstly, sorry that it's been so long between episodes, I've had a bit going on. Um, My book, The Sun Will Rise, which details Ukraine's struggle for freedom, that is released on the 28th of November and I've got events happening uh, in the United States, in New York and Washington DC and also in Sydney and Melbourne. In Australia, you can buy it at sunwillrisebook.com So that has been sucking up a lot of my bandwidth So I do apologise, along with uh, a lot of other travel uh, and foreign policy related work So, apologise, I've got Hagar Shemali on as ever to discuss everything happening around the world Now, um, I should say that uh, whilst we tried to avoid it It's impossible to avoid the Israel-Palestine war The war underway between Israel and Israel and Hamas um, continues to dominate conversation around the world, and we talk a lot about that conflict, but also why it has such a large presence um, in the minds uh, of people living very, very far away from the conflict, and why it is such a difficult, difficult uh, conflict to resolve. We talk a lot about what's happening between the United States and China, Australia. And China and also Australia's relationship with the Pacific and also we touched on some interesting things happening uh, in the subcontinent uh, in Pakistan in particular so it's a big episode as always thank you so much for listening I've got a very special episode coming out uh, in about a week or two so keep an eye for it it involves my book so please uh, if you have been following the show for a long time and you like my work either the podcast or you like the things that I've been doing uh, for the Australian Financial Review and elsewhere please take the time to buy a copy of the book Uh, it's a tribute and a love letter to the people of Ukraine so I really would appreciate your support so buy a copy or buy 50 Uh, but without further gibbering for me enjoy the episode. Hagar, welcome back to the show, mate. Good to see you. I know it's been too long, but so good to see you as always. So
1: good to see you. Such good times, Misha. It's like the world news is just never boring.
0: Well, as we always say, is the world spinning faster? Whether that was true in June or whenever we raised it, I can absolutely, without question, say that I believe that it is. Certainly faster than it's spun in a very, very long time. It's hard to keep on top of everything. But we will start where I think we have no choice but to start, although I'm reluctant to start here, which is the war between Israel and Palestine, the military response to the act of terrorism by Hamas on the 7th of October. Israel has now entered uh, into Gaza uh, essentially to destroy the Hamas regime. Now maybe you could just take us to where the conflict is right now as quickly as humanly possible, though I know it's a very difficult thing, but on a military basis, where are we at right now?
1: Yes, we'll just focus on the current state. So uh present um sorry, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu has said that they are in the quote second phase of their war, the first phase were um, significant bombardments and uh, aerial strikes, and the second phase is something that that he expects to be much longer and drawn out, which includes a ground war and some strikes as well, but basically a long-term effort to kill Hamas leaders and root out any cells of terrorism or what they said pockets of terrorism, and so that's what they're gonna. That's the phase they're in right now, and you see that. It's evident by, uh, as we can see from, Israeli forces moving into Gaza. Apparently, they move in very slowly, about 100 yards per day. And the reason for that is that they're kind of slowly uh, looking at traps and mines and and looking at the well, tunnels. It's, it's
0: urban warfare, which is the hardest thing you can do militarily. Completely.
1: Oh. And everybody has said that. I don't have an expertise in, in military warfare, but I can say that every single general I've seen on on air has said that urban warfare is the trickiest and the most dangerous. And, uh, and so that's where they are. So right now they've reached Gaza city, um, which is basically almost halfway through, uh, Gaza. And they've, they, they say that the bottom half is what should be, uh, the, the humanitarian zone or, or the zone that they've told civilians to go to, at least. And, uh, they've encircled Al Shifa Hospital, which is the, the a hospital target that they've been talking about a lot in the press because Israel alleges that there's a Ham- Hamas command center. Underground, the u.s has not really done anything to disabuse people of that belief and uh, having worked in the u.s government i can say it's not it would not be surprising because hamas typically
0: well let's talk about that because just very briefly it is worth pointing out that uh with enormous regret and frustration that hamas quite deliberately uses hospitals in particular but schools civilians essentially as shields because uh to almost tie the hands of the Israelis and it's not an uncommon strategy. Generally you'll see where people say, well, we we know we absolutely should not be bombing hospitals, right? As a general proposition. But of course, if you make that your headquarters for your terrorist organization, what does one do in that situation? Yeah.
1: It's, 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 uh, there's no other word I can think of for this other than an impossible task. And it's tricky and it's, It's incredibly difficult, and even today, for example, the U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was talking about it, and he said that while he doesn't want to see assaults on hospitals, he very much laid blame on Hamas for putting people in harm's way, and he explained that that Hamas's effort to embed itself in residential areas, in schools, in hospitals, which we know they do for a fact— adds to the burden that's the word he used that it adds to the burden and it creates this burden on the Israeli government in its effort to defeat Hamas and to defeat its military capabilities and its governing capabilities. And he's right. But he also emphasized that the burden does lie with the Israeli government in ensuring that it upholds the rules of war, uh, the, you know, the international rules of war that are laid out in the Geneva Convention, as as it pursues its goals. And uh, and so listen, it's tricky. It's kind of one of those things where you don't have a strong, you're not coming out with a strong statement one way or the other, <laughs> right? The US is not saying, hey don't bomb the hospitals or don't go into the hospitals. And they're also not saying, hey, uh, uh, it's a, we, you have a carte blanche because Hamas is definitely there.
0: It's- well, let's talk about this because there's a lot of pressure uh, publicly around the world on the Israeli government right now in terms of what is being judged to be a disproportionate response to what happened to the 1,400 people that were murdered in cold blood by Hamas inside of Israel about 5 weeks ago do you to your mind is israel overreacting here is there ever good evidence to support that proposition obviously people are quite horrified looking at images of you know, civilian targets being bombed and and cities being destroyed etc and and of course a lot of civilians are dying so it is horrific the scenes and you know we don't want to see deaths of Israelis or Palestinians. Um, So, you know, noting that it's an impossible problem, do you think there is any validity to that critique? I'm curious about that.
1: Well, so I don't view it so much as an overreaction as much as some tweaks that that I feel would need to be made to the military strategy. And the reason for that is that if I were advising the Israeli government on – what I see is, I mean, you have multiple goals here, right? One of the goals is to defeat Hamas and secure Israel's defense by defeating Hamas and ensuring that it never poses a security threat ever again. And I am all for that. Uh, Hamas was in my portfolio when I worked in the U.S. government in counterterrorist financing. Uh, they are a bunch of criminal thugs, and I hope nothing more than Hamas to be defeated. And so this is one of the big goals, Another goal is to release the hostages or rescue the hostages, right? And then you have um, what I would say is, is a broader goal here of ensuring a secure Israel. And the way this military war is going, I believe that Israel will win the battle. In defeating Hamas the way the coalition states defeated ISIS. That's not to say that they'll be successful at eradicating Hamas. It may still exist. But I do believe they'll be successful at obliterating their ability to govern or launch Watch. rockets at, at, at Israel. Um, but I don't know that this way of pursuing war will help achieve their, their broader goal of a secure Israel. And that's because inevitably, when you have civilian deaths of this kind and destruction this way, Inevitably, you are going to have it's so many people who are displaced, who will not be able to return for a while, at least until things are rebuilt. Uh, who are going to be living in poverty? Grievances are going to grow all over again, and it will incite further hate and violence. And so, so let's just can I
0: just talk about then where these calls around the world we're seeing a lot for demands around a ceasefire, around humanitarian pauses. What's the validity or viability of these types? I mean, a ceasefire, I think, whilst it, like anything, um, it, it, it's attractive because, of course, we want peace. Of course, we want ceasefires. The problem with that, of course, is that it essentially would almost insulate Hamas from you know, essentially being militarily held to account for its enormous act of terrorism five weeks ago. So just talk to me about... the the, splitting out the politics, I understand why people are calling for it. Let's talk through the practicalities of ceasefires, humanitarian pauses, and, and, and why they're not happening, to what degree they are happening.
1: Yes, I'm glad you asked this question. You're really flying through the schedule, given how much there is to break down on this on this topic.
0: <laughs> I uh, look. This is an issue that is enormously complicated, but also uh, hello to all the experts that are tuning in. That uh, exasperates me sometimes because I just the lack of informed and nuanced discussion of it. Uh, you know, is enormously frustrating, which I'd like to discuss. Also, but yes. keep going. So uh, the
1: ceasefire so a question. So first, let's define them. A ceasefire is a termination of all aggression for an indefinite Period of time, up until October seventh, the situation between Israel and Gaza or Israel and Hamas was of a ceasefire. It uh, they had ceased fire from the last round of violence a year before. There have been a total of five rounds of violence between Israel and Hamas since two thousand seven. Hamas took over Gaza uh, in two thousand six. So this is so ceasefire. It's it's a cessation of all hostilities for an indefinite period of time. Humanitarian pause is something that takes place. It's very common in war. It can take place for a few hours, up to a few days, and is and it's usually very specific, uh, not just in time, but also in, in location, to say, you know what, we're going to stop all hostilities in this region for this amount of time to allow for people to get out or to allow for humanitarian aid and humanitarian organizations to come in, whatever the goals are, whatever is brokered, basically. And after a lot of pressure from the U.S. government, is uh, the Israeli government has agreed to humanitarian pauses that will last, at first I saw four four hours, now I've seen six hours, but anyway, somewhere in that window. And the U.S. had requested for humanitarian pauses up to three days. Right now they're at four to six hours. The the, ceasefire, the problem with the ceasefire, from a pure military war strategy standpoint, is that When you pursue a ceasefire, especially with with a terrorist organization that doesn't abide by the same rules, you're, you're fighting someone or a group that doesn't have anything to lose. And they behave that way, as you can see. I mean, that's why they're willing to sacrifice all of their people in their goal to annihilate Israel. When you pursue, when you do a ceasefire with a group like that, it only gives them time to regroup, resupply, and gain an advantage. And they've already said publicly in numerous interviews that they intend to continue pursuing attacks similar to October 7th. And that's not bluster. Given what they were able to, to, to plan for October 7th, I would not put it past them to have other tricks up their sleeve. And so you can't, if you're the, if you're the side that has just, where this terrorist attack has just happened, having a ceasefire really undermines your all of those goals that i had previously mentioned and it sends the wrong message by the way to to not just Hamas but to nefarious actors and terrorist groups across the region that if you pursue a terrorist attack of this kind that's this brutal and you take 244 hostages then it's okay the the the, the aggressor that's bigger that's more powerful that needs to be the better person they'll be they'll be pressured into stopping into stopping the war and it's just it's not the right message it's better to uh, in my opinion to take a more a longer view perhaps yeah. and so you you called it overreacting i wouldn't say overreacting as much as being more targeted being more specific even if it takes longer P- pursuing assassinations mm-hmm. more surprises things of this kind without without displacing 1.1 million people and 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 right. and really killing so many. Well, the,
0: the big fear here is clearly Israel has uh, an obligation to defend itself uh, and it also uh, has a moral authority to respond to what happened. Having said that, the concern is, and I think Biden made this point when he was talking to the Israelis, Netanyahu, was that, don't make the mistake that we, the United States, made after 9-11, which is an emotional response. That's right. It's hard to think rationally when something egregious happens to you, right? Um, but that, you know, to everything you just pointed out is making sure that you're very precise and clear in your thinking and not saying, well, we must do something and we must be seen to be doing something and therefore whatever it is, it needs to feel good as well as be sensible to whatever our not just tactical objectives, i.e. killing every Hamas leader and destroying the network, but the strategic objective of Israel, which is a safe and secure Israel. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I just want to turn to Netanyahu because I want to just make this point because everyone knows that I'm a strong supporter of Israel, but I'm a strong supporter of a two-state solution, and I'm an enormous critic of Benjamin Netanyahu uh, as a leader, as a man, and his government and the policies that they have pursued that I think have been uh, provocative um, and unhelpful and designed to effectively make a two-state solution next to impossible. Um, So I just want to talk a little bit about pressure on Netanyahu domestically inside of Israel, because obviously there's a big shock moment. You get an attack like this, it's horrendous. Everyone rallies to the flag, rallies to the government. There's a unity government formed. Since then, there's been questions raised of, well, how the hell did this happen? Who was in charge? What went wrong? And Netanyahu's basically his only legitimacy uh, as a leader of Israel is I keep Israel safe and secure and I will be strong um, in that pursuit. Certainly not being elected for his... Uh, good graces, witty personality, and uh, you know, adherence to domestic laws and anti-corruption um, norms. So, I'm kind of curious about that and the pressure coming to bear. There's protests outside of his place and other things of that nature.
1: Right? He's He, you know, he gave himself the name Mister Security, and uh, and that was his argument, as you said. Ah. Yes, that's what he calls himself, Mr. (laughs) Security. When he campaigns, it's I'm Mr. Security. You know, with me, you don't have to worry because my tough policies are all about keeping Israel secure. And, um, and and so let's let's break this down. First, I am with you. I am a loud supporter of Israel. Loud supporter of the two state solution. I do not believe that you can have peace without two states. And, uh, and I've also been, uh, very critical of, of Bibi Netanyahu specifically. And, and I, and I, and you know, here in the United States, I find that, that folks are lumping in Israel and Israelis with Netanyahu, which is really not fair because he, especially now, has never received more criticism. And, and, and his own people and his own newspapers, like the Edboard of every newspaper and all these famous academics and columnists and so on have all come out to say that they, they really do blame him. And they, they don't, they don't only blame him for intelligence failures that led to October 7th, they blame him for October 7th. I'm, I mean, I would never justify any terrorist attack. The thing that, that I would say is, his policies have been incredibly tough and provocative, and and the policies that he has allowed or pursued in the West Bank specifically, where you have the Israeli military that occupies the West Bank, um, have been have have really undermined any efforts toward peace, and and that is because Bibi Netanyahu does not believe in a two state solution. He just doesn't. He and his cabinet don't. Uh, the the one blip on the screen when he had Naftali Bennett who who was in office uh, last year before uh, Bibi took over in December of last year before that uh, Naftali Bennett also didn't support a two state solution this is a problem because in that if if that's the case then your your position in power you are you are enabled if you have insecurity and instability on the ground and um and and so that that motivates him to pursue these tough policies if you need somebody like and listen this is the thing i always say in this corner of the world it takes a lot of courage to make peace it is much easier right. to pursue war and we have seen that time and again yitzhak rabin signed the did the oslo right. accords he was assassinated by a far right a Jewish citizen. Uh, Anwar Sadat brokered peace with or made peace with um with Israel. He was assassinated. Egypt's like. Uh, yes. This was in yeah. the 1970s and 1978. And um, in that corner of the world, it is much harder to make peace. And I would say with him, quickly to wrap up your question, is there were a series of intelligence failures and vulnerabilities that led to October seven, and and there are a mix of reasons for them, and uh, some of them is Hamas getting more getting stronger. A lot of it is this dependence on the security system they had built in the south in 2014, but there was a lot. It's Iron Dome, yeah. A, well, the Iron, well, the, uh, yes, a reliance on the Iron Dome, a reliance on this uh, board, the border wall that they had created a, an underground border tunnel as well to prevent Hamas militants from going underground. Um, it, the Israeli government was apparently quote unquote duped by Hamas because Hamas had said on communications that were tapped that that they had no intention of pursuing war right now. And they had created this economic deal with the Israeli government to allow Gazan civilians to work inside Israel. 18,000 of them were working inside Israel. So anyway, so th- there are many reasons, but one of the most striking really can be tied back to Netanyahu. And it is that because he allowed and and condoned Israeli settlers in much larger numbers than before to go to the West Bank and create settlements, Israeli settlers, Israeli citizens, even if the settlements are not approved by the Israeli government, Israeli citizens are guaranteed protection by the Israeli military. So you have all these troops who are guarding settlements and settlers inside the West Bank, instead of focusing on the real threat. And that is a policy directly tied Mm. to Netanyahu. And so now you've got Israeli citizens who they are aware of this and they are not afraid to speak up. And they have been quite loud in their dissatisfaction with, with Bibi. And Israeli politics, as they are, are quite volatile. I mean, they change prime ministers quite often and they change governments quite often. And so I would expect when things calm down that Bibi will get the boot for sure.
0: Interesting. BB will get the boot. Mr. Security, mm-hmm. um, as he uh, has failed uh, in his own self-declared mission, which I think always, um, for me, in politics, including domestically, uh, sorry, uh, diplom- Democratic. democratically elected leaders, but also authoritarian leaders, you got f- you got to succeed by your own definition of success. Um, and, th- and that is always a big thing. Sometimes someone will do something and say, well, yeah, but no one expected them to do that. Mm-hmm. But if you say, I will do this, I will keep you safe, and you don't, then politically that's there's hell to pay. Now, I just want to quickly turn to, you know, we've talked about two-state solution. You know, we've talked about how difficult it is. I, I just want to talk a little bit, zooming out slightly, and I mentioned all my very lovely Twitter trolls and other experts um, in Middle Eastern politics that rear their head every so often when they're not studying uh, energy transition charts, uh, Eastern European conflicts, insert other issue, um, United States political sophology, Um, Africa. Uh, So, yeah, at the moment, the thing that is exercising people uh, quite militantly around the world is this conflict. And I'm just wanting, yeah, because essentially no one ever approaches this issue... You know, clean hands or a clean mind, if I can put it in those ways. Everyone has a pre-existing view of it. There's little to zero nuance, uh, unfortunately, when you're dealing with questions of religion, identity, land, history. Not a lot of room there in a deal space. Um, they are unfortunately, and I, there are there is a way, and people have tried to get there, and very nearly got there in the nineties, as you mentioned with Rubin. Um, and, and, and Clinton in that process, but uh, the deal space is narrow and the actors are not motivated to act Are also very dug in. You know, Hamas and Netanyahu are never striking a deal.
1: That's right. That's right. <laughs> that is so a fair prediction. The I,
0: right. So the, the question I have is why do you think that of all the things that are happening in the world, that this issue draws in so much political attention and heat and energy from the activist class, the hawk class, you know, university campuses, the diaspora, whether it's a Jewish diaspora or, or the Arab diaspora. I mean, you perhaps expect them to argue their own interests and it's very important to the those involved. And I'm not sort of trying to minimise the importance of this conflict, but it just some sometimes... Another thing about it, political context, in my experience within the Labor Party, how often conferences are dominated by essentially academic debates about Australia's position in relation to Israel and Palestine, because we can't in any way greatly influence what happens there. Uh, I know there's a lot of people saying, oh, well, why does the Australian government call for a ceasefire? Okay, if we went out and did that, we're not going to do that. But if we did that, the impact would be... Slim. Nothing. Um, <laughs> let's be honest about this. Um, I'm not even sure there'd be one if the United States called for one uh, immediately. So, um, which we could debate. But anyway, very long way of saying why does this issue, you know, gather so much emotional attention, right? Yeah, you know, vis-a-vis its geopolitical relevance, notwithstanding the importance of
1: it. You know, this um, even before this round of violence. I used to say that one of the reasons I really didn't like talking about it is because before you open your mouth, people start throwing tomatoes at you without you even having said anything. If you're lucky. Yes, if you're lucky. Tomatoes would be pleasant. (laughs) Yes. and, and, And you're right. It's because it is an incredibly polarizing and divisive issue that is very emotional. And there are many reasons for that. One of them is that it's not debating politics. We're not debating big pharma or welfare or taxes we're debating, people are debating things where only one side can win. When you're talking about things like religion and land and culture and history, these are, it's, these are impossible things to debate. And, and so that's one side, one reason.
0: Especially if you take a zero sum approach to it, i.e. Israel should never exist. um, Islam or, or Judaism is the only religion. Like if you have this approach, then you forget about Yes.
1: Them. Oh, God, completely. But I also think that, and this this is the second reason I really think that, um, that it's such an emotional issue and always has been, by the way, is because there's some aspect of this conflict that seems to touch everyone, even when it doesn't. And so what I mean is that even when there's an activist group that um uh, and I'll give you an example here in the United States. The, those who are tied to the Black Lives Matter movement, Black American activists have been quite vocal on this issue in support of Palestinians. And it is because they, 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 they feel that they share this feeling of, um, of some kind of, you know, of injustice of some kind, whatever the injustice is, it may be, it may differ, but they feel they have this shared commonality. And as a result, they, they feel emotional about it too. And, and that is, that's just one example. It goes, it plays out in many different ways in this way. And then the third thing I would say is that this division and polarizing sentiment and emotional aspect to it has been multiplied but in a way I have never seen and would have never expected because of social media and a lot of that. So social media has been awful. Mm. There is nothing worse to further divide people and undermine any foundation for peace. Honestly, honestly, I believe that than social media. And that is because you have people with huge platforms who are not educated on this, who say things that are right. very angering? Who use words that are very that are very triggering, um, often inaccurate, right. and that?
0: Well, we know, yeah. And that, that, just sorry not to cut across mm. you, but that is one hundred percent correct. In that, again, in my little part of the world where I have negotiated these motions and agreed positions between both sides, every word is litigated within an inch of its life. It's like a Supreme Court. Decision. Of course, every word matters. Everyone cares specifically about this word and that word doesn't just have meaning in the English language. It carries with it a whole host of history of the conflict back and forth about who did what to whom at what point. And then these fly-by-night heroes drop in and go, well, I just think everyone should just, you know, stop genocide. Mm -hmm. You know, let's have peace now and just complete nonsense interventions. But you're right, they have huge platforms. And anyway, so keep going. I, uh, but I, I feel just I feel particularly aggrieved about some of the dare I say bullshit I'm seeing from so-called uh, wannabe experts online.
1: Oh no, um, we all cool. have one of those or more of those that we've identified online, and I have either unfollowed or just you know kind of tried to block. And um, and you, you make such a good point about the use of words. I have a video coming out on this on the on the importance of words. And sometimes I find myself feeling really angry and thinking to myself. Well, where were all of you during the Syria crisis? Where were all of you when the Rohingya in Myanmar were were getting killed? Or the where where were all of you when the Uyghurs, over one one million of them, have been imprisoned and are still getting imprisoned? You've been quite silent on that one, and and yet this is the conflict that that has right. has in, has inspired you or moved you, and yet those numbers are way larger, and the impact of those those conflicts are also more significant in many ways. And so I I mean listen, it's I've tried to analyze this and I don't think I have the perfect response as to why this issue in particular is so irritating and, and and emotional and aggravating to people um and why it just kind of unleashes this 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 banter and and these divides but um but I I think it's a mix of all of these things and it's only going to get worse if we don't if there isn't some kind of two-state solution or, you know, some kind of political political solution in general.
0: Now, as we hit minute 28 here, what I was hoping to get to a close <laughs> impossible. conversation. Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. Um Do you have any hopes for a two-state solution? Is this, what's the viability of this? Uh, it feels further away than perhaps ever before. Um, I know everyone always says this every time, but it does feel like a... Far, far away.
1: Okay, so, listen. I am a little bit of an optimist, and I feel like you have to be to work on these issues for a really long time. Otherwise, we'd all just bury our heads in the sand.
0: (laughs) Nobody would accuse me of being an optimist. I think. uh, (laughs) All right. Well, I'll, I'll be. be, I try to be. I'll be the
1: yin to your yang right now. So, the my and uh, listen, I believe. That when things calm down, the effort to pursue a two-state solution – first, like I said, I believe Bibi will be out in in a matter of months. And I believe that the effort to pursue a two-state solution and prioritizing that as a foreign policy objective by every major government – um, every regional leader as well, by the way, in the region, and hopefully the Israeli leader, or whomever the next one will be, and Mahmoud Abbas, the, pal- the leader of the Palestinian Authority, who's quite weak, but we'll get to that. Um, I believe they'll reprioritize this effort and the process for it. So that, I think, is that, I believe is is inevitable. And you already see a lot of banter about it. You already see the Biden administration for example has continued to say this that we need to get people back to the table. Mahmoud Abbas has already said that he would be he would step up and and uh, take control of Gaza and I mean part of me is like, well, yeah, of course you will. But like but he is offering to to for the Palestinian Authority to reassert control and to, or to assert control over Gaza uh, once Israel is done with its military operation.
0: Yeah, because uh, just for anyone who's Uh, not following their favorite social media influencer, Uh, the Palestinian Authority have not really had control of Gaza really for Fifteen years would be fair to say. Yeah, since, uh, or
1: much in general. Terrorism. Yes, they're very weak and very corrupt. And I'm not right. saying it would be easy at all. But I will. I will tell you that the U.S. is the one that put the Palestinian Authority there to begin with in the West Bank. It was part of the deal in the 1993 Oslo Accords that there be a Palestinian Authority and that Mahmoud Abbas would be its leader. And so, uh, and so, I'm pretty sure if. And I know it was a different time, but I, I, I believe that there's a way to influence that in a situation like this. And so that said, I think it'll be prioritized. But where where do I put the chances of that process actually resulting in a two-state solution? Listen, they're going to run into the same problems that they always have, right. the issues that-
0: The best predictor of a future action is previous action, right? Yeah. Um, you know, History is not a map but it's a guide i'd put it Um, at 20 percent. take your pick of any kind of (laughs) take your pick of cynical uh quotes um but of course like you know the the problem with it is is if people continue to be prisoners of history Mm -hmm. and prisoners of the history of this conflict then it will never get anywhere and it, it will take enormous amounts of courage coming back to your points about the courage for peace That's such a good Uh, quote. I want to write that down. (laughs)
1: Yes, You're right. You're right. If you allow grievances to continue and you don't have the courage to make peace and you don't do the hard work to make it happen, there's a fascinating – I know we're so over time, but this is a really important point that I'll finish on. Um, I was listening to a fascinating podcast episode about – the talks in Northern Ireland and how they brokered peace.
0: No, you know not allowed to advertise on podcast on this Notice podcast. I didn't
1: mention. Nobody listened I didn't mention it. where. I didn't say where I heard it.
0: <laughs> you can say it.
1: I only mentioned that I heard a podcast episode about the, the talks in Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement. And, and the person being interviewed who was the British broker, I forget his name, uh, who brokered the deal basically and led that through, he said that there were were these conditions that are needed for peace. There were three main conditions. One was that both sides genuinely want peace and are willing to do the hard work for it. Two is that there are these third parties, these outside powerful leaders and and governments and other parties that are there to shepherd that process and really prioritize it. And the third is that after that agreement is signed, whatever whatever agreement is signed, that there is also an effort on all the parties involved to ensure the continued implementation of that deal, because that's how trust is built. It's not built overnight. It takes decades, if not more. And I thought it was fascinating because I happened to listen to this only a couple of weeks ago when this was happening. And, and, and the, the interlocutor said, you know, no no conflict is unsolvable. They're all solvable. They just need these three elements. And I agree with that. I think I think that's right. So hopefully, hopefully, this conflict will face uh, will will have the ingredients for for success.
0: Well, I've, you know, hope springs eternal. Now, switching to a topic that I'm a little bit more interested in talking about uh, is our favorite subject <laughs> of China. Um, now. China is undergoing it's in, the Chinese leadership. Xi Jinping is in an interesting moment right now where they're facing a lot of economic headwinds domestically. And really, over the last, I think, year, they're kind of looking at getting, the fact that they essentially got out over their skis diplomatically. And so there's a misalignment now. especially they realize that a lot of the world is enormously spooked um, by uh, China's diplomatic stances on various things. And at the same time, Uh, China's economy is slowing down for part reason in response to that. So you've got de-risking, decoupling, what you want to call it. Essentially, um, United States and its allies looking to hedge away from the Chinese economy and also throttle their economy by restricting access to technology to some degree, but also because of their own demographics, domestic decisions that Xi Jinping has made, huge amounts of debt. So Anthony Albanese, Australia's Prime Minister, was in China, some degree of a Uh not a, not a reset, but some kind of stabilizing of the relationship between Australia um, and the people's Republic of China, but fundamentally Australia gave up nothing in that, in that four year tussle, I suppose you want to call it between both countries where China essentially tried to squeeze Australia's sovereignty, but it was a visit that, Got a lot of attention in Australia, but got a lot of attention in China. I want to just use that as a pivot to Xi Jinping is making his first trip to the United States in I don't know how long, perhaps you can tell us. And just tell us about what that says about where China it was. We talk a lot about how democracies see China, but how is China seeing itself and its relationship with other countries, you know, the United States in particular, and what's its sort of strategic. I guess footing right now.
1: Well, so to start with, uh, you you asked the first question about when President Xi is coming, and he will be here on Wednesday, November fifteenth. They.
0: This a big it's deal. It's a
1: huge deal. It's a huge deal. And by the way, I mean the news is barely covering it, but maybe once it happens, they'll cover it. Um, but they were good. They're both. Um, they're both there to attend next uh, the the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, which is taking place in San Francisco. Um, and, uh, and so that's where they're going to be meeting, you know, on the sidelines of that. And they're go, you know, it's, this is going to be, it's an enormous, enormous meeting. And listen, they're going to try and make it easy in terms of, they're not, they don't, they're not going to want to have it be contentious. They, we, the United States just, Reopened again, something that would normally be major news that was barely covered because the conflict is just kind of like sucking the oxygen out of the room. Um, is the fact that the United States and China reopened military communications, military to military communications last week, and that's a significant. Development in where those commun- communications have been down for a while now, like since the Donald Trump era. And, um, and the defense minister of, of, of China is sanctioned, still sanctioned by the U.S. government. It's not like they removed those sanctions. So it is a big deal. So th- you've got that. You have now this, this, um, meeting taking place where my guess is that they're going to talk about things of, you know, less contentious issues that Blinken already discussed, the Secretary of State Blinken discussed when he went, when he traveled to Beijing. Um, so perhaps, you know, release of certain political prisoners or, or at least American citizens, um, uh, you know, definitely issues related to trade. And, uh, you know, the thing about trade is, and, and in the U S we've, um, the U.S. government has been conditioned in using the right terminology that has that won't offend China, and we've seen this with the Treasury Secretary. We are the, the the goal there is to diversify the supply chain because any other use of any other word is is offensive. But the fact is that trade since 2018 between the United States and China has only gone up, and it has gone up because China is buying more goods from the United States, which is obviously a good thing, something we want. So, you know. They're going to talk about um, continued trade. They're going to talk about Ukraine for sure. Um, And, you know, it'll probably be some kind of discussion, not a slap on the wrist, something along the lines of, you know, we're watching you. Please don't provide military aid to Putin. Please be a source of, you know, maybe in the future you may be, we, we are probably going to need you in negotiations. So please maintain that kind of position. Um, so I expect it to be kind of um, not pomp and circumstance, but uh, it will be substantive, but not news breaking, right? Not not like earth shattering, moving the needle on on the relationship. This has been, the, this is the culmination of the past few months of an effort on the part of the US in particular to reestablish ties uh, with, the, with, with, with China to make sure that we have those lines of communication, that things don't, that there isn't a a, a mistake or miscalculation that happens, for example, in the South China Sea or wherever. That said, there's, there's a lot of inconsistency when it comes to China's behavior. And um, you know when they drew that map when they have that they when they put that map out that i think we spoke about the last uh, episode or the episode before this map that that basically exerted sovereignty over all of the south china sea the himalayas taiwan and so on um you see them it, you see them executing that map um and and that will only run up against the us and and its military interests in the region can we dive into that or i don't want to jump ahead of you
0: Well, we are actually – I'm looking at our producer and we're getting the wind up. Okay, I'll say quickly. we're going to have to
1: (laughs) – Because (laughs) this is important. The Chinese rammed a Philippine vessel and that's not unique to them. I mean ramming it is pretty harsh. Usually they do water cannons and stuff like that. But the US came out to say right after that happened – this was just a couple of weeks ago – we will defend our ally, the Philippines. And so I went up and looked up the Alliance agreement because I was like, well what the hell does that mean? And it turns out that if China attacks the Philippines, the US will completely come to the Philippines defense to. to so that is that I mean now they don't consider this to be an attack, which I would agree with. it's not, but that's it's it just highlights to you how precarious this diplomatic dance is and that this is an effort to keep those snafus at bay.
0: Now, because we enormously mismanaged our time. We're catching up. We're catching up. I think that's your fault, <laughs> not mine. But, uh, as, your fault uh, as the co-host. Um, Fair. Very quickly, for John Dory's, I'm going to say very quickly, anyone who hasn't checked out Australia's uh, agreement with Tuvalu, it's a huge deal. Tuvalu is a tiny, tiny micro-state in the Pacific. There are 11,000 people that live there. It is a country that is quite literally sinking. Um, Australia has said that any – of the entire 11,000 people that live there want to repatriate to Australia, will be able to do so in the event of climate change. But most critically, Australia has obtained what would effectively be a veto right over the security arrangements for any nation that might be looking to build a base in the Pacific, hint, hint, they've been mentioned in this podcast already. Anyway, so that's my dory very quickly. Check that out. Huge, huge deal in amongst a massive, massive week of news. I would say... One of the most important things Australia has done in recent times, amongst many other things. Yours, very quickly.
1: Super quickly. Um, I'm following this story about Pakistan expelling or deporting Afghan refugees in the south of the country. They have, since November 1st, have expelled 300,000 Afghan refugees and about 1 or 1.1 million are are facing the same fate. They have nowhere to go. It is the winter. They are basically being sent into the mountains of Afghanistan. And a lot of this is because it's, it's a breakdown in the relationship between Islamabad and the Taliban, but it's, it's Pakistan's very, unsophisticated to put it lightly way and and really catastrophic way of dealing with terrorism in in that region there is um a group in the region called Tehrik Taliban Pakistan or the TTP that have pursued attacks on Pakistani military and police and 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 it's not good i mean i'm I'm not gonna sugarcoat it for you um but expelling that many refugees. In one go, like this, in the winter, when there's nothing set up in Afghanistan to to house them or receive them, could be really a disaster of epic proportions, and um, and certainly not a way to counter terrorism. It's just it's just kind of a weird, kind of archaic or barbaric way to do it. So, anyway, that's I'm going to be following that very closely.
0: Well, a couple of uplifting doors there, but anyway, look, uh, thanks (laughs) so much for joining us for this conversation. (laughs) I know, but uh, look, uh, thank you everyone for listening to what was a very depressing conversation. (laughs) But uh, Hagar, thanks so much for joining us and we'll do this soon.
1: Sounds good, Misha. Thanks for having me. Hopefully next time will be more positive news.
0: Well, we live in hope. Bye for now. Thanks so much, Hagar, for coming on the show. You can obviously catch up with Hagar on her show, the Oh My World show, does some outstanding work either there or where she's a contributor all over US media. Now, once again, just gonna throw this out there for those who have not yet pre-ordered a copy, please jump on and order yourself a copy of The Sun Will Rise. You can get it at thesunwillrisebook.com or you can jump on the show notes, follow me on social media, you'll find it there. Um, It's a a fiction story based on real events inside of Ukraine. It's got some strong reviews already. You can check those out on the website and I hope you enjoy it. If you do buy yourself a copy, please read it and remember that you need to keep Ukraine struggle at the top of your thoughts because what happens in Ukraine truly does matter everywhere. Uh, Otherwise, thank you so much for listening. If you can get along to the New York, DC, Sydney or Melbourne events, I'd love to see you there. I'll sign you a copy of the book. Otherwise, bye for now.
1: You are just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels.